Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Gaudi Mitzbez 22.com podcasts and YouTube videos. Uh, I didn't do many of these this past summer because I was traveling everywhere, Rome in particular. So now I'm sort of making up for lost time. People have emailed me. So why are you doing so many podcasts lately? Well, I, I kind of miss doing the darn things. And um, so I'm very pleased today uh, to have a, a first class theologian whose works I've, I've admired for a very long time. Uh, and that is Dr. Greg Lenave. And he, uh, Dr. Lenave, uh, got his PhD, I believe, at Catholic University many moons right. ago. I mean, what year was it? What year did you get your PhD? 99? 2001. 2001. I was off by two years. 2001. I'm impressed. I, I, I went, <clears throat> well, I went to print off <clears throat> your credentials and your various publications, and my printer over here suddenly ran out of ink when I went to do that. So, I was on not because I had so many of them. That's well, you, the do, you do, you do, you do have a few. And so I would direct my listeners and viewers to uh, go to Amazon and look up Dr. Lenave's works. He is a specialist, not only in sort of fundamental theology, dogmatic theology in particular, with the thought of uh, St. Bonaventure. Uh, and I've, I've always found Bonaventure to be very, very interesting. And so maybe we can get into that. But today we're on, and Dr. Lenave teaches at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., uh, which is very, very close to the campus of the Catholic University of America. I've been there many times, and uh, I believe you're a full professor now. Is that not yes. true? Yes. Oh, congratulations, Thank reaching you. that major threshold. Anyway, the topic today that we're going to discuss is the development near and dear to my heart, as all my listeners and viewers know, is the development of Catholic theology over the past couple centuries in particular, from the 19th on through the 20th centuries. Uh, Dr. Rodney Hauser and I have recently embarked upon a, a podcast series on the documents and teachings of the Second Vatican Council. And for those who are asking, the next installment of that is coming up towards the end of next week, where we will be speaking of Dei Verbum. So in other words, there's a theme to a lot of my podcasts of late, and it is uh, the matrix of Catholic theology over the past couple centuries, because uh, that really is where the rubber meets the road in terms of a lot of the major controversies that are going on today in the church and then some of the non-controversies that are going on in the church. So anyway, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Lenave now, and, uh, and just ask him to briefly introduce the topic of um, the ongoing development of Catholic theology over the past couple centuries. So go ahead, Dr. Lenave. Yeah, thank you, Larry. Uh, I'd like to start with a Thomistic perspective. I teach at the uh, Dominican House of Studies, so that's a natural. Uh, nice. But more particularly, several times over the recent years, I've taught a course called uh, um, Thomism in Modernity. And the original idea for the course was to look at you know, sort of a historical introduction for students about what Thomism has been doing in the past two centuries. When I got into looking at the 19th century in particular, it became a very fascinating study because you see a lot of interesting things happen just generally in Catholic thought during the 19th century. You begin the century with the Enlightenment and the Romantic movement, which are somewhat at odds with one another, and various Catholic thinkers trying to figure out how to take account of these kinds of things and still be faithfully uh, Catholic thinkers. They had 
mixed success in doing that. The magisterial response to this tended to be very careful, uh, tended to uh, be in the form of condemning certain propositions that had been uh, associated with these different authors. You get a um, watershed moment, I would say, at the First Vatican Council, when the church very clearly teaches, not only do we know certain things for certain, but this is how we can recognize what we know for certain. And it's particularly tied to the doctrine of papal infallibility that's articulated there, but it's presupposing just the general idea that reason and faith are harmonious and the Catholic Church as the bearer of revelation can be absolutely certain about uh, certain things. But it was a little bit unmoored from any particular uh, intellectual uh, source within the church. Sometimes people have the idea that Thomas Aquinas just reigned over Catholic theology from, well, if you will put it um, in a facetious way, from the moment he was born until <laughs> the Second Vatican Council. Um, <clears throat> Not true. As a matter of fact, it was very hard to find people really doing Thomistic theology in the 19th century until the late 19th century when you had the election of Leo XIII, trained as a Thomist, and his first encyclical, Eterni Patris, uh, which I hope we'll talk about uh, um, and the effect that had on Catholic thought uh, later on. But just setting the stage for we are really committing to Thomism in the training of seminarians mandated the study of Thomas in seminaries and gave a picture of what Catholic thought had to do in the modern world. One doesn't have to necessarily use Aquinas to do what he wanted to do, which is part of the reason I want to talk about that encyclical more, but Aquinas is extremely useful for doing that. We then have the development of that in the early 20th century, and you have lots of very interesting things happen in the Catholic world in the early 20th century. You have, first of all, you have the mandate to teach Thomism in seminaries. But then after a couple of decades of people scrambling to do this, you have different traditions within the Catholic world saying, well, wait a minute, we're Scotists. Do we have to teach Thomas? We're Suarezian. Do we have to teach Thomas? Uh, and the response of Rome is consistently... No, you can be faithful to your tradition, but you can't teach that Thomas is wrong on these disputed points. So it actually opened up some possibility for people continuing to teach within different traditions. At the same time, you have a varieties of Thomism. You know, and you have the great works of people like Gilson and Maritain. Um, Paper. And many, uh, so many others, right? Yeah. Uh, during the first half of the 20th century. Um, and then you also, of course, as you well know, you have the resourcement movement. Um, and we should talk about, you know, the connection between those things. But there's just a lot going on during that time. Yes. It's a time of incredible ferment. Um, sometimes people have the impression that, well, before the Second Vatican Council, where there was a real commitment to, you know, Thomism in Catholic thought, it was kind of sclerotic. You know, it was very hardened, you know, memorize these things and you're good. And Ralph McInerney actually has a very fascinating essay on what it was like to be a seminarian uh, at that time uh, in studying philosophy. It's, it's, it's kind of damning. But on the other hand, I remember my parents who um, were college students in the early 1950s talking about just what a rich time it was uh, in the Catholic intellectual world. 
very much fed by Thomism. My dad was a student briefly at the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies in Toronto. And you know, there was a lot going on. Then we have the Second Council and things change. Um, and for a while, there is the eclipse of Thomism, as well as eclipse of a concern for the tradition generally, but that has made certain strides back. So that's a very rough overview, lots of different pieces we could talk <clears throat> about in that. Yes. So uh, before we go any further, I, I, I meant to say this at the beginning. I want to say it now. Uh, due to a very generous donation from a viewer of mine, I do have a new camera. And uh, hopefully those of you who are watching via YouTube can notice uh, a much greater clarity in my wonderful, ugly face and image this time around than I have in the past. I just wanted to give a quick shout out uh, to this donor. I don't know if he wants to remain anonymous or not, but thank you very much. Anyway, I was wondering then, as you were speaking, um, what then before Tene Patris, before the sort of rise of Thomas Aquinas's uh, theology in, in, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, what then was the theology that was being taught, say, in seminaries before that time? You said there, you know, it is it is historically true to say, yeah, it's 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 not the case that Thomism simply reigned supreme from the 13th century until the late 19th century or up until the modern times. So mm -hmm. what, what was going on theologically before the, the sort of neo-Thomistic revival? Uh, I'm not an expert at that. I would, from what I've read, I know that certainly there was the teaching of theology by way of manuals, but they were not necessarily informed by a really strong Thomistic uh, view. There had been an interesting, as you well know, I think the uh, interesting movement in the 16th century with the Jesuits right. uh, in Spain, particularly coming up with a new way to teach theology through Aquinas's Summa, breaking it into different tracks and teaching them as an integrated whole. Now that continued in some ways, uh, particularly in Dominican education, uh, but you don't have the, um, you have a more apologetic uh, um, attitude towards theology in some ways. That's at least that's what's coming yeah. across in magisterial determinations. You know, as Catholic thinkers in the early 19th century are trying to deal with different questions. Okay, Go good. Uh, yeah, no, th this is why I asked the question. I'm no expert on that either. And and the, just the general impression that I get in reading the history of Catholic theology is that theology was, for the most part, being taught, say, from the Council of Trent forward, um, to, to seminarians. I mean, it was it yeah, was a sure. very clerical enterprise. Mm -hmm. We're not yet talking about major university faculties and these huge universities of theology departments teaching lay people and undergraduates and all this kind of thing. It's, right. It was very much a clerical enterprise, and it was very much oriented towards preparing men for the priesthood. Mm -hmm. And in, in the polemical context of those times, not just the Protestant Reformation, but the French Revolution and the Scientific Revolution and the Enlightenment and all of this uh, going on, this foment going on in Europe, there was this apologetical sort of quality to theology, a sort of defensive mm -hmm. posture to it. Here's what you priests need to know in order to combat the errors of the age. Therefore, mm -hmm. my, my question to you then is this, and you know, we can talk about this. I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot like, oh, geez, I better have an answer to this. But <laughs> Uh, it would it would seem to me that along with the rise of neo-Thomism beginning in the late 19th century, there there was a, also a shift at the same time from a complete and almost total focus on seminary education 
as the primary location for theology being done, to a much broader atmosphere uh, in secular universities even, or in major universities. And you, therefore, you saw in the 20th century this explosion of theological creativity, maybe because it was, it was breaking out of the confines of the seminary. Is, 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 what do you think of that analysis? I don't, historically, I do not know when you start to get more lay people involved in the study of theology. But something that's worth pointing out is that the revolution, it really was a revolution that came about because of Eterni Patris, was originally a philosophical revolution, not a theological right. one, right? Um, the Eterni Patris is often given the title on Christian philosophy. What Leo XIII was saying is that here are the evils that we know in the modern world. We need to respond to these, and we need to do it by knowing uh, the truth about natural things, as well as what God has revealed. Right, right. right. But it's very much, let's get our philosophy uh, clear. And so what you have is a great deal of ferment in a return to, to mystic philosophy. And you see that in a different way later in Leo's pontificate with the renewal of Catholic social teaching, which again is dealing with natural principles, natural law, common good, and so on, right? These are things that lend themselves to conversation in a university, not just in a seminary, in the public sphere. And so while you certainly do have people doing theology at the same time, there is that focus, right? And interestingly, also one thing that Leo insisted upon in that encyclical was there are certain identifiable ways in which we have to be open to new knowledge. And the one that he highlighted was science. Science, modern science is going to give us actual new knowledge and advance over what the Christian tradition had had before. And we have to be able to incorporate that, which meant, that you start to get Catholic intellectuals who are dedicating themselves to really engaging with the sciences as well. Again, something that can happen very much in the university context. That's that's really that's really really interesting, and that that shows my own biases as a theologian, assuming that this is all about theology. Uh, but in in reality, I think that's that's really insightful. That what what we see in 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 Leo the encyclical is not so much a desire to create a new Thomistic theological push as it is to gain a greater precision in Catholic philosophy, specifically, perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong here too, uh, uh, with the metaphysical first principles uh, for doing philosophy. And so, yeah, you do see this, this explosion, to keep using that term, of, of Catholic philosophical sort of genius late 19th century into the 20th century as well. Um, I, I think, yeah. And so then that, that then creates this renewed push for, for, for Catholics to understand the precisely the worldly world. I suppose that then has a bearing on why the, one of the central theological controversies of the 20th century, which also then has philosophical roots was that great, debate over the proper relationship between nature and grace. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you can expand upon, mm -hmm. upon that aspect mm -hmm. of Catholic theology and its development over the past century or so. 
Well, um, I'm going to wade into heavy waters here, and I'll probably okay. just dip my toe in because I know who I'm talking to here, right? And I know you've 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 written and talked a lot about this. Uh, yeah, you but... love talking about this with with your guests. So um, I do. Um, I want to approach it. Trust me, I'm not setting a trap for you. I really want to know your answer. <laughs> I'm I'm not a I'm not a Delubakian mm -hmm. trap setter here. Like, gotcha. <laughs> no, I really I really want to yeah. know. I really want yeah. to know. Well, one of the things that definitely happened, not immediately having to do with nature and grace, uh, but with ramifications of that, the whole. The whole resource movement actually begins in a certain way in the 19th century. After all, you have uh, Leo, um, uh, um, uh, the, um, starting the, the Leonine Commission, right, yeah. to get the critical edition of the, of the works of Aquinas. You also have the Franciscans doing a critical edition of the works of Bonaventure, which they finished, by the way. The, the Leonine Commission is still working on, on Aquinas. You also have an incredible amount of interest in uh, historical realities in the 19th century. All these bishops and scholars of the 19th century, they were all, you know, Orientalists. They were interested in archaeological things and so on. But then in the 20th century, the Ressourcement had various uh, um, wings to it. But the one that I find most interesting is certainly the patristic Ressourcement, right? So while you have people in a way coming from Leo XIII saying, this is the tradition. And yes, Aquinas is taking a lot from the fathers, but we can just start with Aquinas, assuming all of that work and move forward. And there is a lot of people starting to say, Basil the Great says really interesting things. Gregory of Nyssa says really interesting things. John Chrysostom, Maximus the Confessor and so on. Right? There's just great wealth of knowledge there. Right now, this again, this is not specifically on nature and grace, but the I think there is a connection in that mm -hmm. when you're looking at the fathers, they are perfectly capable of having a uh, what a Thomist would regard as a properly philosophical conversation about something. But at the same time, they're less interested in making the precise distinction. Now I'm being a philosopher. Now I'm being a theologian, and the states. You could say their their view of the world is a world that is in relation to grace, you know, through and through, you know, whether it's in the rejection of grace or it's in the acceptance of grace. So that mindset begins you with that mindset and that retrieval of the fathers. It's quite understandable that those people would say we don't understand our world properly by bracketing what we know in faith. Rather, we need a thoroughgoing understanding uh, of the whole, and that's going to allow us to, um, to even be good philosophers. The Thomist, um, for various reasons, uh, some warranted, some less so, uh, is concerned that you might be um, undermining your ability to have a philosophical conversation and an important philosophical conversation in the modern world. You might be reducing your conversation to simply something that people of faith talk about only, and they very much want to engage the full yeah. uh, range of knowledge. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I have had the suspicion that Bonaventure provides a nice intermediary point 
between, say, a Baltazar and a Thomas uh, on some of these questions. I'm just going to throw that out as a teaser, though. Oh, wow. You can't <laughs> just throw that out as a teaser. All right. Well, we're, we're going to circle back to Bonaventure. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I, uh, when I was at Fordham getting my PhD, I never had a chance to take a class from him, but the great Ewart Cousins mm -hmm. was at Fordham at the time. And he was, of course, a, a big Bonaventure guy. So there was a lot of Bonaventure and Bonaventurians floating around during my time there. But I was so locked in in my Balthazarian little universe and doing battles with the Ronarians at Fordham just trying desperately even to get the right to, to even do things on both. So that I didn't mm -hmm. avail myself of, of cousins properly, I think. So I would like to circle back to Bonaventure since you're an expert in that. And of course, Joseph Rotzinger uh, was very, mm -hmm. very uh, keen on, on Bonaventure. Well, let's, let's stay a little focused here. I know I often have trouble focusing with these. <laughs> I, I'm always so interested in everything my guests have to say. I, I, I'm like a river that's spilling over its banks all the time, meandering around. But I, that's the way I like these interviews to go. But anyway, uh, to, re to return then to, to these, these 20th century debates, I mean, what, what's interesting to me, oh, the, the, the debate over nature and grace mm -hmm. sort of set aside for, for the second. What's, what's interesting to me is that resourcement theology, which is my expertise and my love theologically, arises at, really at the same time as the rise of a kind of Thomistic revival and the neo-Thomistic revival. And I'm wondering, and of course, the resourcement theologians, especially people like Jean-Daniel Lou and others, mm. had a real ax to grind against, against the sort of Thomistic synthesis that was gaining a kind of control of the ap church apparatus at that time. So in other words, there was an, anta there was an antagonism there that caused resourcement theologians to really go after, uh, the, in, in some sense, the scholastics, not so much some of these Thomas, but, but the, the scholastic edifice. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm wondering to what extent they threw the, maybe threw the baby out with the bathwater. I know that uh, people like Dr. Matthew mm -hmm. Minard point this out and others. And I wonder, mm -hmm. so what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, on the relationship between the Thomistic revival and the resourcement theologians, and then, the issue of church politics and and how that Thomistic synthesis got tied up with the Holy Office and, and mm -hmm. then you know, attacks on Ray Sourcemont guys and so on. So go ahead. Yeah, uh, I have had this kind of description of the history in my mind, and I think it's it's kind of cartoonish, but I think yeah. there is a point to it as well that. It is certainly the case in, say, the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the 20th century that, you know, in the church, the official reigning thought was Thomistic. And so the resource month theologians are outside of that. They are being, you know, dealt with harshly in some ways. They are not... Um, uh, there's, there's, they are seen in opposition. Both sides are seen in opposition. You know, Pius Twelfth in Humanae Generis says, none of us should have a problem with the recovery of the fathers. The problem is when you want to set aside what the tradition has come to as a synthesis, you know, in order to go back to the fathers, right? Right. But they see it as an, as an, as an opposition. Um, 
on, I'm not going to assign blame for that. At the moment, we can talk about that perhaps, but it strikes me that the people, the resource month theologians were trained enough in theology that they could have, there was an opportunity, a missed opportunity to have a real enrichment of the theological tradition. So, you know, coming at it from, you know, being a doctoral student in the 1990s, right, my, myself, I just want, okay, I have an I have an affinity for Aquinas. I have an affinity for the scholastics. I understand the way they're putting things together. Now, if I'm studying Christology or studying Trinity or I'm studying Greece, it's wonderful to have the incorporation of what the fathers said in a, in a fuller way than would have happened 50 years previously, right? So I don't want to see an opposition. I want to see an enrichment, but an enrichment of an identifiable tradition. That project, I think, was largely not undertaken from either side because of the sense of opposition. Right. You know? So to be a resource theologian was to set oneself, is to you know give honor to Thomas, but, you know, <laughs> But not to Thomists, right? Yeah, uh, or yeah, to the commentators yeah. on Thomas, um, and and vice versa, right? Oh, Augustine's great, Basil's great, uh, but but we're doing this now, okay? We've already done what we need to do uh, with them. So, yeah, uh, uh, I, uh, an opportunity was missed. And of course, uh, well, I I agree, an opportunity was missed. And the reason why I ask these questions is not out a, a, a pure academic interest; it is in the interest of trying to understand our contemporary theological project, what is needed now in the church in order to, in a sense, develop and deepen our understanding of an identifiable tradition. I love the way that you put that. I think that's so critical right now mm, that we absolutely. understand what is the identifiable tradition that we are talking about? What are the currents of theology that have fed into that tradition? And therefore, what schools of theology need to emerge and how they should cooperate with one another is, mm -hmm. is to me, sort of the burning question of our time. Mm -hmm. do you, do you, do, I, yeah, I, I entirely agree. I think uh, I, it was in something you wrote recently, or maybe it was a, in the past half year or so, about how we're not serving the contemporary church by just having, you know, battles between the Ressourcement and the Thomistic theologians now over really interesting and important points where there is genuine disagreement. Yeah. But we have to see that, no, we are on the same page in so many ways that let's, you know, we we need to uh, say that more loudly, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you entirely agree with this, right? Right, because we are we're, we are trying to both both sides, the Thomistic and the Resourcement, if you still mm -hmm. can even call them sides, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, both sides, I think, really, really need to lay down some of the internecine aspects right. mm -hmm. of this warfare and to get on with a project of redeveloping, redeploying the resources of the church in order to combat this growing, this hemorrhaging of Catholics into the world, out, yeah. out into the world, um, and, and for, for a lot of reasons. It also, okay, the, 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 and I want your sort of expert opinion on this as well, because we're talking mm -hmm. about all too often because of my biases, when I interview guests on this topic, 
it always devolves into this conversation about Thomists and, and racehorse Mont guys. Mm-hmm. But that that pigeonholing of things has its it has its strong points, but it has a, a downside, which is number one, it downplays the kaleidoscopic varieties of racehorse Mont theologians that mm-hmm. we just place under this umbrella term, even though mm-hmm. there's all kinds of different ones. And that's also then true of Thomas. I know Tracy, my friend Tracy Rowland, who wrote the book. Uh, Catholic theology. Uh, in that book, she identifies no, no less than 17 different versions of Thomism in, mm-hmm. in one of the chapters there in the modern world, uh, some of which are mutually exclusive. One could then go on to say, for example, that the Ronarian trajectory, Marichal, the transcendentalist, mm-hmm. represents neither Ressourcement nor Mm-hmm. Thomism. I guess I would say Rahner and his transcendental theology is more in tune with a certain kind of Thomistic epistemology uh, than he is with, say, certain kinds of racehorse Mont guys. Ah, I like your cat. Then there's uh, also <laughs> then you also then have the emergence in the 20th century of more political theologies. Uh, theology, mm-hmm. uh, uh, action Francais versus mm-hmm. uh, uh, oh, Catholic action, uh, mm-hmm. worker priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I don't I, I'm always so guilty of sort of pigeonholing these conversations. So mm-hmm. I would I would like your sort of broader take then on these other schools of thought that are in play in, in especially in 20th century Catholic theology. Okay, so the next three hours, I will go through an outline of all of the relevant schools of Catholic theology that one need to consider. Yeah, right. Uh, that would be fun. Yeah, how long, how long do we have? No, yeah. um, maybe another time. Yeah, well, um, we don't we don't have three hours, but maybe close <laughs> to it. So go ahead. Um, let me just toss out some random thoughts, and then we can try to put them together. One thing I think is worth noting is that, now interestingly, I had no background in scholasticism before I started my doctoral studies. I in fact wrote my master's thesis on Baltazar. And in the late eighties and early nineties, and I think you could say, you could verify this for me. If you were a tradition minded Catholic studying in a graduate school in the uh, United States, Unless you were doing historical theology, the bit, the best game in town was Baltazar. Yeah. If you're a tradition-minded Catholic, you tended to gravitate towards Baltazar because nobody was reading anybody else. That's me. Time. That that was me in the yeah. late 1980s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were places that were doing just Aquinas, but very few. Um, and, you know, like the Dominican House of Studies was still doing uh, Aquinas. Uh, Center for Thomistic Studies in Houston, but that was more philosophical, uh, was doing Aquinas. Catholic University, again, in philosophy, was doing Aquinas. Interesting fact, uh, in the theology department at Catholic University, a friend of mine defended his dissertation in 2000 on Aquinas. And at the reception, the dean wondered aloud, when was the last time we had a dissertation on Aquinas? And it had been something like 20 years previously. So at the Catholic University of America, just there's not that interest. If you're doing historical theology, yeah, maybe you could you could do that. But but in systematic theology, Baltazar was it. So one of the things I think we're seeing since then is that as the situation has changed somewhat, and there have been more good teachers of Aquinas and and others out there, 
those same people who gravitated to Baltazar are saying, well, wait a minute, no, this seems to be a better option. And so that has actually set up something of a tension between, it's not the tension that comes from the 30s and 40s. It's yeah. a new tension that you see, I have seen sometimes between, for example, the House of Studies in DC and the John Paul Institute and uh, right. Marriage and Family. Well, I've seen that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, but it's, you know, it has to say it's a healthy tension, don't you think? I mean, that's been my experience of it. Oh, it's healthy in the sense that these people enjoy each other and are interested in having conversations with each other. Yeah, it can be right. very antagonistic. I've seen it mm -hmm. very. But at the same time, there's a deep mutual respect there, it seems to me. I agree. I agree. Um, how much they are kind of talking past each other sometimes is, is yes. interesting to see. Now, actually, to, to bring a personal note to this, um, you know, uh, uh, years ago at the Academy of Catholic Theology, uh, I remember you gave a paper on uh, sacraments, a Baltazarian, uh, I think it was yeah. Baltazarian read of sacraments. Yeah. And, and I asked a question that was straight out of a Thomistic playbook. I've just been teaching the intro course on sacraments at the House of Studies, I think. So that was probably what prompted it. And, you know, it was like this, like we could, if we had longer, we could have, you know, delved into yeah. it more. But, you know, just what you were talking about when I was talking about, we weren't in, going to be easily able to um, uh, have a productive conversation. But like, OK, you're making yeah. good points. Let's talk later. Right? Well, so you the know, conversation can be hard. <laughs> you know what, too? Uh, I have to admit, I remember that uh, that interchange very, very well. God, it was like 20 years ago now. Yeah, it right. seems like, uh, And I remember thinking when you ask the question, because I am not a Thomist and I, right. I, I just, like you said, two ships just passing and you got to the end of your question. And, and I remember thinking in my head, Oh crap, how in the hell do I answer this? Because I had no <laughs> idea. And so I just fell back on boilerplate Balthazarian stuff. Uh, yeah. And so you're right. It just, you asked a very good question and then I just surfed right over it. Because I, I really honestly didn't know enough about what you were talking about to make an intelligent counterpoint. I also remember Jim Keating from Providence College asked me a question that I couldn't answer, but I can't remember what it was. But it Jim, was a very Jim does that. No, oh, he does. He's great. Uh, he <laughs> yeah. just reviewed my book. Uh, I read that. I read that this and, morning. Yeah. First things. And, I, and it was a very favorable review. And, and so, Jim, mm -hmm. if you're listening, I, I thank you for it. I just met. Uh, his wife, Sandra, at a Word on Fire conference in Rochester, Minnesota. She presented a paper in the same panel that I did, and uh, we had just an absolutely delightful conversation. So anyway, big yeah. shout out to the Keatings and, yes. uh, and, to, and to the Academy of Catholic Theology, where we kind of all met. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, back, back to the point yeah. at hand. Back yes. The, the, so, okay. There has been this sort of, yeah, it was like Thomism. It kind of gets eclipsed after the council. Uh, and then starting really in the 80s and into the 90s, Balthazar was all the rage amongst tradition minded. And I think that's a key mm -hmm. point yeah. amongst tradition minded young Catholics. It really was true. Balthazar mm -hmm. was the only game in town, I think, primarily because the only other resource month theologian that I can think of that had put forward a, a real grand systematic theology. Uh, that that went from A to Z, soup to nuts, was Louis Bouillet. But mm -hmm. for whatever reason, Bouillet was not picked up by the young generation. Balthazar mm -hmm. was. 
Right. And we ran with Balthazar. And then now there is this resurgence, a sort of a neo-neotomistic resurgence mm-hmm. that is that is said, OK, you Balthazarians had your day. Now, however, there is a need for this I sort of, I think, as I see it, a kind of return to a, 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 a Thomistic precision that you that you lyrical poetic types lack and uh, that we need this return to this position. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. But then I want to uh, in all of this, though, what mm-hmm. what role what role have the Ronarians played? Let's put in Ronarian theology. I mean, as I was talking with Bishop Barron out in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and he gave a talk along these lines uh, as well. I mean, when we were coming up, I mean, he and I are the same age, 65, and we were in seminary at the same time. And when we were in the seminary, Ronner was everything. Mm-hmm. The sun rose and set on Karl Rahner. Uh, you dare not challenge that Ronarian synthesis in, in your in your seminary classes. So what mm-hmm. what role did do you see Ronarianism have pl- having played in this development of theology? And and what yeah. role does it play now? The first thing I would say uh, about Ron and Ronarianism is very interesting. I think I can probably count on one hand the number of shall we call them Ronarians of the strict observance? <laughs> I know. Discalced Ronarians. <laughs> you know, people who are really trying to very carefully follow Ronner himself. What you have, and what you had, I think, in the time that you're talking about, is not that. Yes, you did read Ronner. You know, you read Foundations of Christian Faith, for example. You read yeah. things from Theological Investigations. Right. But it was conveyed to those classes by means of Ronner's pupils and the pupils of Rahner's pupils, right? So for example, I, as far as I know, uh, it's certainly the case a few years ago, Fordham is you know, thoroughly going Rahnerian in a sense, but a really careful, strict reading of Rahner, I don't know that that is what they're concerned with. It's obviously stemming from Rahner. People like uh, Elizabeth Johnson, all right? They're bringing, they're, they're getting the thought by way of Rahner and his disciples, but it's not a strict reading of Rahner. I'm thinking, you know, somebody like Stephen Fields, right, would be a, a more strict yeah. Ronarian. But there's very, very few of them. So uh, Ronner's influence was he asked a very, in the modern world, a very, very timely question, which is what um, but we can, uh, how I want to put this, um, it's not a metaphysical exactly conversation. It is a critical conversation. So what are the conditions that have to be in play for me to say these things theologically, say these things in faith? What am I, what has to be the case about God, about me, about the world in order for me to say these things? And it's very much tied to a Kantian uh, revolution and thought. Kant, of course, did not deny that the outside world existed, but he said, what we have is not access to that. What we have is our access to th- the connection between that and us. That's what we know. Turn that into theology, okay, and especially through Schleiermacher in the sense that th- there is an actual religious sense that the person has. Okay, so all of our theological and dogmatic statements are about our religious sensitivities. What then, how do we analyze that? That's a, that's a very worthwhile question. Sure is. It's just, what do the Ronarians do? They refuse to have the conversation about what is in fact the case. 
they refuse to be realist. Um, right, right. They, they, a, ne they never seem to break out of the methodological box that they've created for themselves. Mm -hmm. I once made, I gave a talk at CTSA one time at a joint meeting of the Balthazar and Rahner societies. And uh, someone before me was a Ronarian stood up and said, what you Balthazarians tend to neglect is that a Ronarian methodology does not preclude one from beginning with the reality of dogmatic truths. Uh, Ronarianism mm -hmm. doesn't preclude that. We, we mm -hmm. could do it that way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and before Roger I gave himself my, off and did. Yeah. And so when I stood up and I, I said, I pointed out to him, I said, when I followed him, I said, and in your talk, you did not do that. In your talk, I said, and I, I said, Rahner himself did often begin with mm -hmm. dogmatic assertions, take them to be true, and then lay, then go on to say, right. and here are the conditions of possibility for our understanding of that dogma in our times mm -hmm. uh, through this sort of Kantian lens. And everybody got a big laugh out of that because they realized, well, it's true, you mm -hmm. know, that for all their talk that you can begin with dogmatic truths, they rarely do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because, as you correctly point out, I think uh, what we're getting is Rahner through the lens of his epigons, mm -hmm. <laughs> through the lens of yeah. his not necessarily even his epigons, even people that are somewhat as equal intellectually have nevertheless filtered him through their own lens. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're not really getting Rahner. And, and, and a friend of mine who does uh, Rahner research has driven this point home over and over and over again, especially we have to be very careful about things attributed to the late Rahner, mm -hmm. who by that time had turned over his entire theological project to his underlings. Mm -hmm. People were even publishing things in his name that were not written by him, mm -hmm. uh, but written by others. And so th that's very interesting, I think. Uh, but anyway, to, to, to get back to um, it's a, a little bit off course here, uh, but nevertheless, very, very pertinent. I, I, I think that, that the, the, interesting thing about Rahner in, in this regard is, I mean, I'm not an expert on Kant and it is sort of boilerplate understanding now that, mm -hmm. you know, whereas Balthazar followed kind of the, the stream of thought beginning with Goethe and mm -hmm. on through and, and Balthazar himself makes this point. Rahner begins with, with Kant. I'm no expert in Kant, but it seems to me by the time you get to Kant's third critique, you see Kant in a sense, taking back, walking back, <laughs> some of the claims of the first two critiques so that by the time you get to his third critique, you see Kant sort of kind of acknowledging that there, there might be some sort of breakthrough into it from our formal categories of thought into mm -hmm. a kind of an apperception of actual objective reality in, in a more direct way than he was mm -hmm. will, willing to grant in the first two critiques. So my mm -hmm. point would be is that though, Kantianism came to follow the path of those first few critiques, and mm -hmm. it might be intended to ignore the third. And, and Ronarianism seems to flow, flow out of that stream. But I wonder mm -hmm. to what extent, therefore, Ronarianism has been eclipsed precisely insofar as Kant's first two critiques have, in a sense, been eclipsed. Now, my analysis okay. then depends on whether or not Kant's first critiques have been eclipsed in philosophy or not. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't want to. Uh, I, oh, a couple of things I want to say about that, um, not specifically about Kant, though. I, I think that's an interesting point about there, the possibility of a, a greater realism. Uh, I, I, that's not just from I, me. I, I picked no, that no, up from, sure. uh, from, from uh, a lot of a lot of people. Anyway, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was say you know, 
I, I can see the point of saying that. I can't really um, say more than that. But what you definitely have in the 20th century, and more and more as the century goes on, is recognizing you know, that there's a, there's a worthy starting point in this kind of Kantian uh, uh, move towards the, uh, um, the transcendental subjectivity of the subject. And you know, then Marshall takes that up and so on. But you get people, at, put it this way, for Kant, everybody had the same apparatus of perception. Yes. Everybody fundamentally saw things the same way. What you get in the 19th century is suspicion about that. And in the 20th century, the results of that is, well, no, it's not that we all perceive things the same way. We have to identify what is that specific element of my subjectivity that is determinative here. Is it social class? Is it race? Is it gender? Is it yes. you know, what, whatever? So, and I will say this, I think you would agree with me, the CTSA annual meetings are absolutely rife with this. Most of the papers I've heard at the CTSA over the years, well, right. actually, don't do those talks anymore, but the ones that are on the program, there's a very clearly, they're all contextual theologies in that way. They're all saying, this is the determinative element for understanding this, or at least for the way I do theology, and here's how I'm reinterpreting it as a result. Okay, that, That's the majority school that I've encountered uh, in, in English-speaking uh, theology. Yes, that's the so true. Right. The other thing that has um, come into play is an outcome-based theology. So for whatever reason, there's the sense of this, put it this way, you know, the, the gospel is a liberating message. Is this teaching, is this structure liberating? If it's not, we critique it. And we, you know, you sort of from the end point determine what, what is true because of what the outcome has to be. Now, oh, so I like to say that these things are conclusions in search of arguments. Sure. And, you know, there's a there's a point to be taken away from that. Right. You should be able to say, OK. Theology is not just about these are the things we know from Revelation and these are the things that we know from natural reason. And let's just deduce a whole bunch of things out of them and, you know, have a good right. time coming up with that. No, I mean, why is Revelation given to us so that we can come into communion with God? If something is happening that is uh, seems to follow from our principles, but is not leading towards that conclusion, you have reason to reexamine it. You know, right, sort of, this, right. you know, um, much the way that, you know, Newman's criteria of development, right? It's, this was the case at one time, this is the case at the other. Is it a development? Is it a corruption? Okay, you two take what is the result as a point of judgment over the, the, the process, right? right but right. But, to, to, but to turn all of theology into, you know, well, what the principles are don't really matter, what revelation is well, doesn't... Yeah, especially since the categories of what counts as uh, li a liberative praxis mm. seem to be themselves uh, a bit naive in this mm. regard. And it's, I mean, they're not consistent with their own internal principles, because right. what, what comes across as liberative practice praxis uh, is obviously socially constructed in many ways, mm -hmm. uh, can be the product of social contagion. Uh, it is not necessarily liberative at all, but simply appears to be so. And it's all 
framed and cast in completely secular, secular categories of thinking. And yet you go to, by the way, for those listening who don't know, CTSA is the Catholic Theological Society of America. It's been around for many decades uh, that you go to the CTSA meetings and it's just a sort of presumed that that these that that this appeal to experience is is unquestionable. Mm -hmm. It's you can't question it. Because to question it is to, to is to question something that they take to be normative. I mean, whereas we're taking the truths of revelation as normative, they're 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 starting, you know, at the other end. I mean, the experiential tale is wagging the revelational dog here, as, mm -hmm. as I like to say. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and there is sort of a fundamental is in many ways, it, I, 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 I tend to see this as kind of Ranarianism gone bad. <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I think yeah. you've kind of connected those mm -hmm. dots, right? Because you begin mm -hmm. with Ronner that's saying everybody mm -hmm. perceives the same. Mm -hmm. We have the same knowing and willing horizons and all that kind of stuff. But then that breaks down when people mm -hmm. begin to realize, no, we don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much of the outcome-based uh, move in theology can be traced to Ronner. I think there are probably other things going on there, but certainly, okay. but certainly the contextual kind of theology, this is the relevant context. And some of the outcome based is contextual as well. I live in a community that's need of liberation, and that is the determinative element of my context that will determine all of my faith. All right. So that brings me to it's interesting. Uh, at the same time, when I was at Fordham and I was getting heavy doses of Rahner, I was also at exactly the same time getting heavy doses of liberation theology. Mm -hmm. And you read liberate. And so we're discussing movements in 20th century Catholic theology here. Mm -hmm. Liberation theology certainly is one of those movements that we have to talk about. And, and what struck me in reading people like Gutierrez and Sobrino mm -hmm. and Segundo was they were all very, very critical of what they called the, the Eurocentrism of theology, mm -hmm. that it was overly academic and cerebral. And they were quite critical of Rahner in particular for this turn to the subject, which they viewed as uh, exactly the wrong turn that we should be making, mm -hmm. not a turn to the subject, a turn outwards into social structures. Mm -hmm. And and yet at the same time, it's a lot of liberation theology, it seemed to me, to presume a certain element of Ronarian transcendental analysis of the religious sense of of the human animal you want to put mm -hmm. it that way mm -hmm. uh so anyway those are i just mm -hmm. i i i, and I kept thinking i was trying to figure out you know like sesame street one of these things is not like the other why was it that that fordham was so intent on pushing both theological methodologies liberation theology in that latin american sense some mets mm -hmm. as well but mm -hmm. then also runarianism and it struck me that the two things despite Liberation theology's critique of Rahner, there seems also to be on some very base level a kind of affinity there. And I'm not quite certain what that affinity is. But anyway, maybe yeah. you could com comment on that or something that you'd rather talk about in terms of liberation theology. Uh, I don't know how much I can draw a connection between those things. Uh, there's a blending of, uh, of the categories. So if let's say that um, you're a theologian who emphasizes the, the community as the locus 
for theology and even can kind of can kind of determine the meaning of dogmatic statements uh, within that. Now, that could be understood in a more strictly Ronarian way as, well, that um, being in community is decisive for the context uh, of, of me as a theologian. Yeah. And so I just have to acknowledge that, you know, this is the lens through which I see things. It could be not looking at the subjectivity, but instead looking at the historical uh, growth evolution of the community and saying that is what is determinative. And by the way, uh, th there's a good point to be made uh, uh, in that way, in the sense that what one would expect in the reception of revelation is a growth in grace, right? Yes. yes. So it makes sense to say, uh, the, the, the part of the point of the proclamation of revelation in this community is the transformation of the community such that it is now more fully living out a life of grace. Now you have to be willing to step back and critique and say, yeah, but not everything that happens in this community is a vehicle of grace, right? Yes. You have to say, oh, how do we recognize this? You know, it's, uh, some people like to say, yes, experience, by all means, but whose experience? The experience yeah. of the saints. It's the experience of the saints that's really determinative. Oh, okay, because yeah. all right, this is now you're getting at this from my hidden agenda here, which is this. Yes. Okay. I so knew the <laughs> the uh the linkage, it seems to me, is as I started putting the pieces together, is that in a kind of Ronarianism on steroids amongst his followers, you find a, 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 such a strong emphasis on grace being everywhere, that everything is always already engraced, mm -hmm. uh, that a distinction right. between church and the, 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 the particularism of revelation, as we see it in the church, vis-a-vis -vis the mythopoetic religious constructions of other cultures around the world, those mm -hmm. kinds of distinctions begin to break down. They blur mm -hmm. and sometimes even go away altogether. So then you get the pluralism of religions, uh, yeah. school of thinking that has Ronarian roots to a certain mm -hmm. extent, because you're seeing this always already anonymous Christianity or this this engracement, which is just everywhere. And that means then all these cultures around the world, in other words, all the various contexts are mm -hmm. loci of revelation. Uh, mm -hmm. that revelation is not simply beginning with Abraham, culminating in Christ, mediated through the church. That is perhaps the privileged location of it in some sense, but even that mm -hmm. gets attacked. Even that gets attacked. But we see revelation emerging, real salvific revelation and therefore salvific grace emerging in the cultures around the world, not just in their religious mythopoesis, but mm -hmm. in their various cultural manifestations and and then liberation theology and other theologies of contextualization come along and build off of that theology of grace to then say, and that's why we begin with context. That's why we begin with boots on the ground analysis of these local experiences of culture and community, out of which we then build a kind of new a new theology. That that's my take on it. I think that's fair. The one thing I would add is that I, you know, I come from a great books program. So in my undergraduate days, so one tends to try to read everything back into the antecedents and the great uh, authors, right? So that's probably not fair in many cases. But 
I can't help but think that part of what's going on in, in the liberation approach is building upon a perception that comes from Hegel, which is essentially that things are moving in a direction. Yes. And what is what is important is the endpoint of that direction. It's not any longer this is what we start with. You know, that that's not determinative in any way. It's the it's the it's the goal, it's the result. So um it's it can be entirely objective. It can, it can be entirely objective to look at things that way. But it seems to me a healthy Catholic thought is going to acknowledge the need for transformation, the need for the community to be a community of grace and so on, but without denying the starting point, the the, the givens of revelation. Right? Yeah. No, I agree. There, I mean, uh, in my, in wanting to draw these connections with, between Rahner and liberation theology in terms of mm -hmm. the theology of grace, you, I, that is a great, great interjection that you just added there with regard to the Hegelian impulses as well, because obviously liberation theology was influenced by Marxist theory, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it anyway. And yeah. of course, in Marxist theory, the Hegelian analysis of history as having this trajectory is, is extremely, extremely important. And all of this is simply a, another way of pointing out how unbelievably complicated in many ways all of these various strands of, of Catholic theology have been, mm -hmm. uh, and, and why we got such a cacophony of voices after the mm -hmm. Second Vatican Council, right? It's mm -hmm. just been this, this, this confusing landscape of, of you know, of these of these rival and competing schools of thought. Therefore, to your last statement, right? Mm -hmm. That ultimately, the way through this thicket, and we can go back to where we started. The way through this thicket, it seems to me, is to return to some concept of revelation as normative, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. Christ. And that, that's kind of what differentiates you and me and the people who think like us from all the rest. I'd point out that, you know, we haven't gone back to a, a Baltazar Thomistic distinction here, but it's interesting to me that, uh, you meant, okay, Christ is the center, interpreting things in, in terms of Christ. How many times in the last two decades have you read Thomists talking about the Christocentrism of Aquinas' theology? It's all over the place because they, you know, what they mean by it isn't the question, but but there's a recognition, I think, that, yeah, if it's going to be Christian theology, it has to be Christocentric. So it doesn't do us any good to pretend that Thomas is not that. So we just have, you know, we come up with our own way of articulating that. It's a kind of an acknowledgement that the desire that is palpably there in that you know, that wing of the nature grace debate that sees things transformed in Christ, that has to be taken account of. That's a good thing, taken account of in Thomas as well, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I'm glad we're back to this because my the point to my, all my various meanderings in this conversation in, down the path of Rahner, liberation theology, Hegel, Kant, all this stuff is, is to, in a sense, to bring us back to why I think, and I think you think, this, the two main currents in Catholic theology over the past 150 years or so are the Thomistic and Resourcemont currents, mm -hmm. and that in the long run, these are going to be the most fruitful currents because they're the ones that take the Christocentrism seriously. 
the revelational mm-hmm. starting point very, very, very seriously it, it, mm-hmm. in, in, in a robust way, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. So then let's go back. Um, so you're, you're, you're saying that in some ways, then modern Thomism is saying, yes, Aquinas was Christocentric. Is, is that mm-hmm. what you're saying right now? That that's, that is sort of the landscape of modern Thomistic thought? That's a com- that's a common thing. Or for example, um, I've, I've written on this about the question of whether theology is speculative or, or practical or affective, whether there's a sapiential element. You know, um, I think in the early 20th century, you have incredible things written on the scientific character of Thomistic theology. Uh, and then because of the challenge of resource-inspired uh, theologians, especially, you get Thomas saying, well, it's not just speculative. Or it's you know speculative in a richer way than we were commonly saying before. You know, it's wisdom, it's wisdom, it's wisdom, it's wisdom. Okay. Yes, it's true. You took the question seriously. So that right. is happening. That is happening right now. Well, and that 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 is a good thing. And perhaps sure. it is it has happened as as a result of certain critiques given by resource mont theologians mm-hmm. uh towards previous iterations of, of Thomism uh that were not always foregrounding. Thomas's Christocentrism, it, it, it seems to me. Uh, so, so wh- where does that then place us theologically right now in terms of the needs of the church today? The Pope just came out with a motu proprio, uh, which I'm, I don't think it was a very good motu proprio. I'm not even certain the Pope wrote it. Maybe uh, Cardinal Fernandez wrote it. I'm not certain. <clears throat> and my main criticism of it is that it's vague. Mm-hmm. And and that it it says we need a paradigm shift in theology away from repeating past formulas towards being more contextual. OK, whoopee mm-hmm. ding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, whatever that means, mm-hmm. which given the nomenclature shows up through certain red flags in my brain, you know, as to what, yeah. what that means. But in theory. OK, fine. Let's let's give it a charitable read. The, the, the motu proprio does say. In the pope's name that theology needs to be more sapiential mm-hmm. needs to be rooted in, in something more grounded in sort of the, the wisdom, the, the sight, if you will, the spiritual sight that, that the faith brings. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's, because, and, and so I said at the beginning, you, you have an expertise in Bonaventure uh, and his grounding of theology within holiness Mm-hmm. Balthazar, of course, had that famous essay, Theology right. and Sanctity, and it seems to me the entirety of the Resourcement project, and to a great degree, the Neo-Thomistic project, is an attempt to bring theology and sanctity back together in a way that mm-hmm. creates not just a scientific theology, but a kind of wisdom, mm-hmm. a kind of insight. Well, um, what, what do you think, then? Is, is, what is the path forward in this regard, with regard to uh, sapiential theology. Maybe you can give it a Bonaventure twist. (laughs) I'll put it this way, that when you're operating with a very Thomistic mindset, you are looking out at the world and you are asking what these things are. And you are absolutely convinced that the truth of them resides in them. Right? That could be a tree. How do I know what this is? It's because 
it really is a tree. Its form, you know, resides within it. It's something that, you know, because of the way I know, I'm able to be open to, right? Mm -hmm. But it applies to, you know, uh, what is a human person? What is human community? Um, all these things. They are natural realities. And uh, it's an incredible vision of the possibility of being open to what God has given those things, right? But the truth of them, it comes from God, but it resides in them. Like to know a tree properly for Aquinas, you probably you have to know that it comes from God, that its first cause is in God. Right. But what it is, God has given to it, right? And so it's a wonderful, you know, um, say, open our eyes to what things are. For Bonaventure, the answer to what these things are is perhaps in addition to that, it is that, or, put it this way, um, yes, the truth lies in the thing, but it doesn't lie most perfectly in the thing. It lies most perfectly in God. So to know uh, a human reality or a natural reality, you most properly have to, you, with least confusion, to know with least confusion, you have to know it uh, in God. But I think Bonaventure would go further and say, and what things are is a manifestation and an expression of God. So really to know the thing is to know the way that God is manifesting himself through it. You can know what the thing is philosophically, simply in the natural light of human reason. You know it truly in that way. But when grace opens your eyes of faith, you are able to see the way in which it is an expression of God. That is equally um, uh, seeing what the thing is. It's not projecting you know, what I know into the thing. It is seeing what the thing is. But you have to be sensitized to that by grace. Right? Yes. Uh, yeah. I think that getting that worked out what you can and can't say in that debate is is a really important one. That you know, it's more on the theoretical level, but it's a sense of, you know, um, if we want to know what things are and we want to incorporate that into our view of the world and of God's revelation, and so on, are we giving full right to what the thing is that God, you know, what God has made the thing to be, or are we regarding it more as an expression of God? Because honestly, if it's the latter then there's a kind of conversation that we can only have among those people who are informed by faith. Yes. Yes. And I sense there's, there's a kind of platonic moment in there, right? At some point uh, that, uh, that the form of a thing mm -hmm. is expressive of an idea within the divine mind uh and and sort of the seminal ideas that are with it with within god so that that in it, knowing a thing precisely as a thing in and through the thing as such in its thingness if you want mm -hmm. to put it that way mm -hmm. is is for all that reason and insofar as you're knowing the thing precisely as it is you are knowing god you are knowing something about god mm -hmm. and there's there's an epiphanic quality to that encounter I don't know if you'd agree or disagree with that, but that that strikes me as is also part of the heart and soul of any theology that would be sapiential. See, my fear sometimes mm -hmm. is that when we talk about theology being sapiential, 
uh, instead of abstract and at the desk, as the motu proprio says, uh, that we're talking about a theology that lacks precision, a, a, a theology that is sort of lyrical and metaphorical and moves the soul in sentimentalist kind of God-feeling directions, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, doesn't want to get more specific than that. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think, I think sometimes when people speak of theology need to be more sapiential, they, that's what they mean in, instead of the description that you just gave. You know, there's a kind of a confusion there between sapiential and purely experiential, right? That's it. Um, that's what I'm groping after. Very yeah. good. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So for Bonaventure, for example, he says that when he's asking whether theology is a speculative science or not, he says, look, the human mind can be perfected in itself. That's what does that is a speculative enterprise. It can be perfected as it relates to action, to work. That's a practical science. Those are the practical science to do. Or it can be related as it is connected to the affect, right? There's a um, as, as the intellect is extended to the affect, he says, and that's wisdom, right? So it doesn't mean that, um, I, I don't think he means by that, that, uh, well, theology just becomes a matter of pious statements that make us feel, you know, warm about the subject matter. It is yeah. rather that um, uh, you only know this thing this revelation properly, or, you know, let's put it this way, you know it more properly, the more you are in love with it, the more there is that connection uh, between you, right? In much in the same way that you know another person better, in many ways, the more you, you know, have the relationship to them. So not just that you know more things about the person, but you see with a kind of depth, right? Right. Right. That's, that's what Bonaventure means by uh, a sapiential theology. So it's not a call to stop thinking or stop, you know, reading right. philosophy books or stop writing uh, at the desk. Uh, that, that that really doesn't have a, a much to do with it. For myself, and maybe I could propose this with respect to Balthazar and, and uh, Thomas, but I've since most of my work is on Aquinas and on Bonaventure, I get the most insight by asking Bonaventurian questions of Thomas and asking Thomistic questions of Bonaventure. Interesting. It's very fascinating to see, because if they agree on the kinds of distinctions you have to make in addressing a question, that's very enlightening. Like they have very different, they might come to some of the different conclusions, but they're going about this the same way. Or you can see, you know, this richness of what Bonaventure is doing actually in Thomas and vice versa. It's very interesting uh, to come about. So you might be able to do the same thing. I don't know uh, with um, with Baltazar and uh, you know some with Aquinas or some representative uh, Thomist. Yeah, it's hard to do. I mean, mm-hmm. I just recently read Aidan Nichols' book, Baltazar for Thomas, mm-hmm. and and I like Aidan Nichols and I highly recommend his works. But I thought that was a very disappointing book, mm-hmm. and because I didn't see how it brought Thomas and Baltazar together, I didn't see the book having proposing Balthazarian questions to Thomas or Thomistic questions to Balthazar and mm-hmm. then seeing how that plays out in a kind of theological creativity. Rather, it, it, it was like two parallel tracks. Like it was like two, it's like, okay, here's what Balthazar says. Here's what 
Thomas say. Yeah. And and so I'm just laying that out there. This this is and then he calls that Balthazar for Thomas. I thought, nah, no, but it, this is not to criticize Aiden Nichols so much as to point out the difficulty of of the proposal. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. It's going to ta- it's going to take uh, somebody who is a real expert in both both traditions, I think. And there's probably people out there doing this. I just don't even you would probably be more aware of it than, than I am. But there's got to be some people out there engaged in that project, right? Would you say that you have read some people who are more Thomistic who are taking the resource among questions very seriously? Yes, I think someone like Jacob Wood. I was wondering, yeah. Jacob Wood is a good example, I thought. Yeah. Um, in my last interview, I plugged his book. I'll plug it again. Oops. <laughs> To stir a restless mm-hmm. heart, okay? Thomas Aquinas and Henry de Lubac on nature, grace, and the desire for God. Jacob Wood, excellent mm-hmm. book. And it's very clear, you know, that he leans towards the, the Thomistic answer to that question, but it's also very, very clear how profoundly sympathetic he is to de Lubac's project mm-hmm. and the need to bring the two points of view into some kind of a synthesis. I think mm-hmm. it's a really good book. Mm-hmm. And so I, I must, because I have now plugged it twice in, in my videos. <laughs> but other than Wood, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of who else might be doing it. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There are people out mm-hmm. there who obviously train. The point being that I want to make is why I was really wanting to interview you today is that lately, this has been my thrust. It's been my kick uh, out of an analysis of what's going on in the church today, mm-hmm. which is I've been very critical you know, Pope Francis, the Synod on Synodality, various Episcopal appointments, the destruction of the JP2 Institute in Rome and various other things. I could go on and on and on. The point is that it's it's no good to simply be critical. It's no good to be simply constantly taking pot shots at things. At some point, you need to have a, a critical proposal of your own, and you need to have mm-hmm. a, 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 a constructive alternative and you know and i've been saying for four years now since i started this blog and and these other writings that that project is the coming together of communio resourcement types and thomistic types um and i and i really stand by that and i'm very glad to hear that you agree with that because <laughs> that means you agree with me you know when i started my doctoral studies at catholic u one of the first things i heard from a professor was the best way to learn theology is to pick somebody who wrote on everything and read everything he wrote. Now, the person who said that was a Ron Arian, but he wasn't <laughs> insisting that it had to be Ronner. You know, he could Ronner, certainly right. make a case, uh, Ronner, he could make a case for, um, for Thomas. Right? But while I appreciate the point he was making, I've also found that that can lend itself to not seeing the point of other people's questions Right. And it, there is something to be said about no um, read two people. You can't read them on everything, but read them on certain key things and see the way that, you know, again, the asking the questions of each other, it's, it can be really, really uh, illuminating. Um, now, my, somebody might say that when I'm doing this with Aquinas and Bonaventure, I'm looking at two 13th century scholastics. How does that help me understand either the patristics or the moderns, you know, or what have you? Uh, okay, but then, but this is where I am very Leonine in my approach to theology. 
Um, I was watched your uh, podcast with uh, Lewis Ayers uh, recently, yeah. and he was implicitly critical of the story that Leo tells about the history of Christian thought in Eterni Patris. But I think there is a point to it. Leo essentially saying that the truth is given to us through Jesus Christ. It, the, the magnificent expression of that in Christian history is the fathers of the church. It's, it, it's amazing what we have in the fathers of the church. Yes. The point then of the, of the great medieval scholastic theologians was to synthesize and to organize that work. In, and that Aquinas is the great paradigm of that. The Bonaventure raises up for praise as well. Okay, so now Lewis would complain that, all right, everything that happened before Thomas is leading up to Thomas. Okay, fine. There's something to criticize there. But the theological project really does need to be about, and can be about, here's where... It can be synthesized. Here are things that right. we can know because everybody actually agrees about them within the tradition, and defining the tradition is an important thing there. You know, but then that becomes you know a, a real wellspring uh, uh, for theology. I have too many. Uh, I know too many Thomists who would say that you know they're 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 teaching Thomistic theology, and they would say, "I'm not teaching all theology here. I'm teaching Thomistic theology." And my reaction is that it's that's really unfortunate because yeah. what I want you to be doing is teaching, yes, you're teaching Thomistic theology with an eye towards teaching what is essential to theology. Sometimes those coincide. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, this is the topic. This is Aquinas' take on this. This is, might be something else. But your, your aim has to be teaching theology. Let's call it a perennial yes, theology. Absolutely. You know, 25 years or so ago, when I was kind of still fledgling, I sent a manuscript to Comunio. I've been published in Comunio, fine, but I sent them a manuscript, and it was on Balthazar and science and a few a few other things. Mm -hmm. And it was rejected. It was the only article I ever sent. It was rejected. And the reasoning came back. They said, because you, in a sense, are engaging here in a kind of Balthazar scholasticism, where you, 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 you don't try to get at deeper theological ideas. You simply skate across the surface of Balthazar and then deduce from that certain conclusions with regard to the faith and science relationship. And, and I immediately saw, then they published an article by Stratford Caldecott on the same topic. And it was better than my article because Strat, his genius, avoided that pitfall of a kind of Balthazar scholastic. He began with Balthazar, mm. but then moved on to the deeper waters of the tradition, which mm. Balthazar himself would have done, right? And I learned a big lesson from that, and it's the lesson that you're, I think you're talking about right now. We, we all want to have a synthetic picture of the faith. We, all, we don't want to simply be dilettantes floating around from one bobbing idea, one cork in the ocean, you know, yeah. bobbing around, doing aimlessly nothing. And, and sometimes reading the entirety of a synthetic thinker like a Thomas or a Balthazar or a Rahner, that's your aperture. That's your gateway into a more synthetic way of viewing things. But it's got to eventually broaden out and open up to the merging of various horizons, if you want to put it that way, various mm -hmm. synthetic views to get at, in a sense, revelation as such. And, and mm -hmm. what is the theological project as such? And what is revelation as such? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of glad that we're sort of ending on this note, because I think that's so terribly important uh, that that this is the theological project of the moment, I think, 
to to get beyond these balkanizations mm-hmm. uh, and and towards a, a, a where we're chastened now i mean 60 years of theological chaos have chastened us and we we need i think to to have a a, a more serious and sober conversation about things but anyway that's that's my spin on what you just said which i wholeheartedly agree on we're sort of running uh we're kind of running on an hour and 15 minutes or so here so i don't like these to go much longer than that uh where where do you let's just end with this and we'll Mm -hmm. let you have the last word what's the way forward i mean what what where do you see great let's not end on a negative what's the great promise going on in, in theologically in the church right now what's happening i would say, and I'm not sure how much is a real theological move, but it's coming from people who are trained in theology. Back when I was a theological student, a lot of interest was in um, in catechetics, essentially. How are we going to, how are we going to understand the faith properly? And so people coming out of theological schools were in other words, th- these are people who had grown up in the 70s and they were just so fed up with the appalling catechesis they had at that time that right. they wanted to teach the faith well, right? So it, was, it tended to be a very intellectual teaching yeah. kind of project. That was supplanted, I would say, in the early 2000s by a strong emphasis on liturgy. So theological students were really interested in uh, uh, liturgical questions. I think that has, there's certainly a lot of people doing that still, but I think what has come to the fore more is a, an evangelistic concern. I am edified by the number of students we have at the House of Studies, lay students who, you know, get their MA and don't want to go on for a doctorate, but really want to go and be evangelists uh, in the church. Uh, yeah. That is, it's very encouraging. I think that the success of Word on Fire and Bishop Barron's uh, efforts uh, are, are testimony uh, to this as well. There are really good things happening evangelistically in the church. And it's a joy as a theology professor to see how that can be related to the theology they got in the classroom, right? It's not yeah. the end product determining the truth of what we said, but it is, you know, this is in fact a joyful, gracious and you know, sometimes condemning message, but this is, we want to communicate that. I think that that is wonderful. I think it is too, and I'm glad you ended on that note because I, I I wholeheartedly agree with this sort of new push towards a real evangelization. Going, I know so many young lay people today that are really devoting themselves to this, and and I think that's important. But anyway, I, I thought this was a wonderful conversation. And I thank I can't thank you enough for coming on today. I've I've been we we had so the viewers know I I actually been thinking about having you on for a long time, and then you and I had an email exchange a yeah. couple of weeks ago about uh, su- subscribing to the Thomist, and <laughs> and then I said, hey, come on, come on the show. So I'm I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you agreed to do that, and uh, and and so I hope I hope you enjoyed your your time here. Oh, wonderful to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks very much. Oh, very good. Okay, so thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Dr. Lenave for uh, for coming on today. And um, I have a few more podcasts coming up in the next week, so stay tuned. Thanks again.